Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Here's something to keep in mind about yesterday's federal criminal indictment of former President Trump. It is a huge national, even global story. Honestly, one of the biggest news events of our time, of any time. But it is also very much a local news story. Here's the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Efforts to overturn Georgia election detailed a new Trump indictment. And the Detroit News. Donald Trump made knowingly false claim about Michigan election, indictment says. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Wisconsin fake elector scheme is at the center of Donald Trump indictment. The Philadelphia Inquirer, what to know about the Pennsylvania fake electors mentioned in Trump's third indictment. The criminal conspiracy alleged in this new indictment of Donald Trump had the biggest and gravest national ambitions to hold on to the presidency against the will of the voters. But the conspiracy itself played out in localities across the country in what we now call the fake elector scheme, the scheme in which Republican electors in states that Joe Biden won signed their names to forged documents pretending that it was actually Donald Trump who won the presidential election in those states. At the time, as it was actually playing out in December of 2020, it mostly looked like sort of sad theatrics from a bunch of pro-Trump dead-enders in a handful of states. There were the Trump electors in Michigan kind of pathetically trying to talk their way into the state capitol, even though the real electors, the Biden electors, were already inside certifying their votes. In Georgia, while the real Biden electors were certifying their votes in the state capitol, the Trump electors found themselves in some room somewhere else in the building to cast their fake votes. And then in Arizona, the Trump electors proudly posted video of their fake signing ceremony to Twitter. In the words of The Washington Post, at the time, the gathering seemed a slapdash, desperate attempt to mimic President Donald Trump's refusal to concede. But what now appears to have taken place, according to Jack Smith's indictment, was not something that was slapdash. It was not just mimicry. These efforts were the culmination of a complex and very deliberate plot described in great detail in this new federal indictment, a plot that was devised by two lawyers who are referred to in the indictment as Trump's co-conspirators. The alleged criminal plan here begins with this gentleman, John Eastman, seen here in that fetching hat, riling up the crowd just before the Capitol attack on January 6th. Now, John Eastman started out by trying to convince Republican state legislators to just overturn the election results in various states that Biden had won. But as the indictment puts it, those efforts met with repeated failure. So Eastman and his co-conspirators, including then-President Trump, according to the indictment, they came up with a new plan. If they couldn't get the election results overturned in Republican state legislatures, well, then they would get the results overturned in Congress. Instead of getting Republican lawmakers in these states to replace Biden electors with Trump electors, Eastman advised they could create their own states, their own slates of fake Trump electors. 
And then when Vice President Pence presided over the congressional certification of the election results that would happen on January 6th, well, then Pence could use those fake slates to claim that Trump had won. To implement that plan, they turned to another alleged co-conspirator, Wisconsin lawyer Kenneth Chesbro. Now, Chesbro drafted memos, basically fake electors for dummies manuals. And he drafted those memos for Republicans to follow in each of these targeted states. But as Chesbro started distributing these memos, these fake electors for dummies memos to the states, well, some people on the ground were not really sure about this plan. One Arizona attorney thought the plan was kind of wild, creative. And while he guessed wrongly that it was legally harmless, he recognized that the plan was essentially exactly what it was. We would just be sending in fake electoral votes to Pence. In Pennsylvania and elsewhere, the electors themselves were getting nervous about this proposed plan. So Rudy Giuliani allegedly lied to them, telling them their fake elector certificates were just a fail safe. They would only be used if Trump managed to win the election in court. Now, Chesborough, worried the fake electors might be getting cold feet, drafted new memos, memos that removed references to the actual plan, which was deliberately overturning an election. Internally, inside Trump world, this plan was so obviously illegal that no one on Trump's campaign staff wanted to touch it. Trump's deputy campaign manager said, quote, here's the thing, the way this has morphed, it's a crazy play, so I don't know who wants to put their name on it. Well, no. The fake elector plan was very clearly not a fail-safe to be used only if Trump prevailed in court. And that was clear because in at least one state in New Mexico, they were gathering fake electors even though Trump had no pending litigation challenging the election in that state. So to prop up the fiction that these electors were a fail-safe, the Trump campaign filed an election challenge suit in New Mexico court six minutes before the deadline for the fake electors vote. I mean, I guess you had to hand it to them for the hustle. After all of this, on December 14th, the fake electors voted. And then all that remained was for John Eastman and President Trump to convince everybody, including and especially Mike Pence, that Mike Pence had the power to use those fake electors to hand the election to Trump on January 6th. We know what happened from here. Pence rejected that idea. Trump launched a pressure campaign against Pence, and that all culminated in his speech on January 6th. And Trump supporters attacked the Capitol to try and stop Vice President Pence from certifying Joe Biden as the winner of the 2020 election. And now Donald Trump and John Eastman and Kenneth Chesbrough are all alleged criminal co-conspirators in the landmark legal case of the modern political era, which rests in large part on a detailed description of the fake elector scheme that puts that all of these men put into motion. As much as we have thought about the crime here being the insurrection, being the capital attack, one of the central crimes of this indictment played out in public. It played out in state capitals across the country, sometimes on television, sometimes on Twitter. What at first appeared to be a series of strange and sad theatrics turned out to be an alleged criminal conspiracy of the most serious kind. Joining us now is Andrew Weissman, one of the senior prosecutors from Robert Mueller's special counsel investigation and co-host of the podcast Prosecuting Donald Trump. Andrew, thank you for being here tonight. It's great to be here. As the dust settles, 
the way in which Jack Smith went about and his fellow prosecutors went about constructing this indictment seems more and more brilliant, to be honest, in the way that it automatically refutes some of the defenses we're starting to hear from Trump land. The first I'd like to talk to you about is this idea of structuring the indictment around actions, not words, effectively leaving the insurrection itself kind of almost as an afterthought and really focusing on the conduct of the fake electors, of John Eastman, of Donald Trump, and the actionable things they did to steal an election. That seems very, very purposeful. Absolutely. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of focus when this first happened on the ellipse and what happened on that at that moment. And everyone was very focused on the First Amendment issues on that, which is, you know, is it incitement? Will it meet the Supreme Court standard and the whole back and forth? And I mean, people, including myself, were like, that is fraught in terms of a criminal case. And they avoided all of that. Yeah. I mean, one of the things when I was reading this was with an eye towards those kinds of decisions um, and keeping this very focused on conduct and not buying into a lot of legal issues, uh, knowing where you know, the courts have been solid, where the courts have raised issues and avoiding all of that. So I completely agree that this was really well thought through. It didn't stop the Wall Street Journal, the National Review and people saying, oh, this violates the First Amendment. Um, and that, that's just to be clear, that's wrong. That will not prevail in court. The First Amendment does not make it legal to uh, I mean, the First Amendment makes it legal to speak. It doesn't make it legal to take, you know, actions that are illegal. So you, you, know, yeah. you can say I want to rob a bank, but if you don't do anything about it, that's fine. But if you go in and you, you, we agree and we talk You're about robbing a bank, rob the bank and then do it. We're robbing a bank. You know, it's the same way that, you know, in mob cases, people talk about a boss says, you know, I'm ordering you to murder someone. You, you can say, well, they were free to speak. That doesn't make their, their language um, any less um, illegal. Um, so here they really focused on specific conduct at issue. So I think they're going to be steering way clear of those kinds of First Amendment issues. Yeah, I just I want to play a little bit of sound from Trump's lawyer, John Lauro, uh, speaking with Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show this morning. It's like they haven't gotten the memo that the First Amendment stuff isn't a very adequate defense. This is what he said. Let's take a listen. This is the first time that the First Amendment has been criminalized. It's the first time that a sitting president is attacking a political opponent on First Amendment grounds and basically making a criminal to, to, to state your position. I just I don't get I don't I is it that they this was the defense they prepared and they're loath to let it go, given yeah. the indictment. I mean, this is it's a talking point. Um, this is you know, this is a defense for the court of public opinion in terms of his base. It is that it's just not legally uh, something that is going to pass muster. I think the uh, reliance on counsel, it still doesn't work. But, it, you, you know, that was the other thing that John talked that John about. Eastman basically said, well, um, you could do this, sir. Exactly. But just to because that's one where I do think it takes, you know, that is something that people are allowed to rely in good faith on their counsel after they've told their counsel all of the relevant facts. Um, that happens all the time. And that's you can have a, a good faith disagreement. Um, there are so many problems with that issue here, for one thing, is there really going to be the president of the United States taking the stand that it's saying, I relied in good faith on these people and they weren't part of the conspiracy? If that's true, why did he say to Mike Pence, you're being too, too honest. honest? Why did he threaten 
uh, Mr. Raffensperger with criminal prosecution if he didn't go along with the scheme. Uh, those are not things that a lawyer says, by the way, I think it's okay for you to threaten criminal prosecution for the, so the Secretary of State who said there's no fraud. Yes. Um, so there's just going to be a lot of issues if they go down that road. Uh, in terms of saying they rely on counsel. I mean, I really do think the things that we're hearing now are there are defenses for the court of public, public opinion, opinion, not for a court. You, in your must-listen-to podcast, interviewed uh, Judge Michael Ludig this yeah. week. And one of the things that Michael Ludig, who is a conservative judge and is a eminence grease yep. uh, and, and, and in a way sort of de facto counseled Mike Pence not to throw away the election. Yep. Um, Michael Ludig suggests that Trump's best defenses have already been tried in federal court as part of the January 6th investigation. Do you think that's true? Like the privilege thing has already been litigated. The best avenues he has to mount a reasonable defense have already been tried and failed. Yeah. So one of his points that I think is really relevant and, and is so appropriate to raise right now, and I'm really glad you're raising this, is that he was saying that in the context of a question to him about, given your experience as a seasoned federal judge in the Fourth Circuit, do you think that it would be consistent with due process to any defendant, including Donald Trump, to have a trial before the general election? Mm -hmm. Remember, the rule of law requires people to have enough time to mount a defense, to look at discovery, to make motions. That is required by our, our rules. And he said, absolutely. And one of his points was that the issues that were raised in, that have already been dealt with, executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, those are all things that the president has had an opportunity to litigate fully. Um, and also to John Lohr's point today, where he said, you know, is it fair to rush us to trial? Remember, the president has had all of the material from the January 6th committee, as, as, as we have, this isn't suddenly surprising him that he has been charged. So if I were a judge, I would sort of listen to what Judge Ludig said. I'd listen to the uh, government about how much discovery is new uh, to the defendant as opposed to material that was already in his possession. One last one. In terms of the appeals process here, if, for example, President Trump, former President Trump, is convicted... What does the appeals process look like? Lawrence O'Donnell suggested last night this could be a four-year-long struggle. Well, appeals can take a long time. The one thing I would say is that we have actually, in the Trump cases, seen appellate courts act very quickly. In connection with um, Alien Cannon, we saw the 11th Circuit act very quickly. Expeditiously. Twice. Um, we have seen that in the D.C. Circuit, which is the circuit that oversees where this trial will be um, dealing with executive privilege and attorney client privilege. So there will be obviously they have to take enough time to understand the issues, et cetera. But it is fair to say, well, it may not be four years, but it could be uh, it could be a fair amount of time. Um, it, by the way, doesn't mean that if if the judge sentences somebody to jail, that they will be out pending appeal. That is an issue that the district judge can decide. Wow. Well, that's an important thing to be decided yes. potentially down the road. We're not going to yes. put the cart before the horse. Andrew Weissman, I have a thousand things I want to talk to you about. Thank you, as always, for your time and You're brilliance. Welcome. We have a lot this evening, including an interview with the top prosecutor in one of the states at the center of Trump's 2020 election schemes, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. And she is making some criminal indictments of her own. But first, a state-level plot to swing the 2020 election that you probably have not heard of, but oh man, it is wild. We will bring you the details next.
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, there was another major indictment that you might have missed yesterday. It was about the 2020 election, and it was brought by a special prosecutor. But it wasn't Jack Smith. It wasn't D.C. It wasn't even Fonnie Willis in Georgia. It was Michigan. And I'm not talking about the 16 Trump fake electors who were indicted there last month. I am talking about brand new indictments in one of the wildest attempts to overturn the 2020 election that we saw anywhere in this country. In early 2021, investigators who were working with the Barry County, Michigan Sheriff's Department started making unannounced visits to the offices of local election officials. They then allegedly used their roles with the Sheriff's Department to convince those local clerks to hand over their voting machines. Clerks said these investigators used scare tactics to get their way. Around the same time, county clerks also started to get calls from a Michigan state legislator named Dare Rendon. Ms. Rendon was saying that the House of Representatives at the state level was doing an investigation and that they needed the clerk's voting machines. But the state's House was not doing an investigation. A group of nine Trump allies were. They allegedly went around Michigan, successfully convincing clerks from three different counties to hand over a total of five voting machines. They then allegedly took these machines to hotel rooms, and to Airbnbs, where they allegedly broke into the voting machines and ran what they believed to be forensic tests. Forensic tests. They were looking for evidence that somehow these voting machines might have thrown the election to Biden. There are a lot of bonkers details in this story. I'll treat you to just a few. For instance, how this group of Trump supporters told the clerks they would only take their voting machines for a few days But then those days turned into weeks and the clerks started understandably freaking out, asking repeatedly, "Um, where where are our voting machines? Or how when that equipment was eventually returned, it was handed off at malls and at carpool drop offs, which is just a totally normal way of conducting business. Pulling up to the mall, dropping off a voting machine. Even just the cast of characters involved in this alleged plot is Not to be believed. For instance, there was this guy, Jeffrey Lenberg, an alleged member of this plot who you can see here, quote unquote, testing voting machines in Michigan. That's the that's the test. You can also see him in surveillance footage on his way to inspect voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia. Now, this is interesting. In fact, five of the nine people allegedly involved in this plot in Michigan were also allegedly involved in a similar plot in the state of Georgia. 
And that Georgia plot is a key part of Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis's investigation into Trump's attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election in her state. That's a plot in which Trump attorneys like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani allegedly coordinated the repeated breaching of voting equipment in that state. And then lo and behold, a couple months later, five of the people involved in that Georgia plot did this incredibly similar thing in Michigan. What a coincidence. Now, I should state that none of those five individuals that are also involved in the alleged Georgia plot, none of them have been indicted for any of this, or at least not yet. So far, only two members of this alleged Michigan plot have been indicted. Dare Rendon, the now former state legislator who allegedly used her position to obtain these voting machines, and a man named Matt DiPerno, the former Republican candidate for attorney general in Michigan. For the record, Mr. DiPerno ran for office after allegedly playing a key role in this scheme and while it was already in the news. As an election conspiracy pushing Republican running for the highest law enforcement position in the state, Matt DiPerno still managed to get 45% of the vote. Now, because of that history that DiPerno tried to unseat the Democratic Attorney General Dana Nessel, because of that, this case had to be handled by a special prosecutor. And that special prosecutor has been quite clearly very busy. At the top of the press release about yesterday's indictment, that special prosecutor wrote in bold, this process is still ongoing and not over. So there very well may be more to come here. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel joins us live coming up next. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The invitation reads, free the 16 electors poolside party. Snacks provided. Please bring drinks to share. Proceeds will be used to support the legal defense funds for the 16 Michigan electors fighting the politicized attacks from the evil AG Dana Nessel. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel indicted those 16 Michiganders last month on felony charges for their roles in designating themselves duly elected and qualified electors for president in 2020, when they most certainly were not. They will appear in court next week. But before that, pool party, to which one might imagine Attorney General Dana Nessel is not invited. 
Joining us now is Michigan's top law enforcement official, Attorney General Dana Nessel. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm not going to even comment on the pool party, but I will I will ask you about the indictment that was just released. Uh, Jack Smith's special counsel's indictment in which Michigan is a major focus. I think Michigan is, appears 39 times in the indictment. And I, I'm sure you've read it. Given the work you're doing on fake electors and that plot, do you see overlap between what is in the indictment at the federal level and what you're doing at the state level? Well, yes, absolutely, Alex. There's overlap. Uh, a lot of the information that uh, was in the indictment was information, obviously, that was in the January 6th report. And that was already well known to us. There were there were a few things here and there, uh, I think, that were sort of newly discovered pieces of, of evidence that we didn't know about. But for the most part, um, we were operating under the same set of, of facts uh, as uh, the special prosecutor was. Um, and uh, to answer your question, no, I was not invited to the pool party. Um, but um, I will say this in my many years of not just being a prosecutor, but also doing criminal defense work. Uh, one of the things that I generally advise my clients is don't call the prosecutor evil. It's it's not ever going to uh, be favorable for you in your case. But, you know, that's that's what we've come to expect now. Uh, and that's just how criminal defendants um, talk about their cases. Um, but, um, you know, it's unfortunate for, for the entire country, I think, as all of this plays out. Yeah, I, I um, it's a pro it's a hot legal a pro tip not to call the prosecutor evil. Um, apparently that's gone over their heads. Let me ask about the voting machine um indictment that that came out yesterday. Do you, it is it doesn't seem like it's coincidence that some of the people who have not been charged, but nonetheless, we know to have been involved in the, the, the plot to seize voting machines and run forensic tests unlawfully on them, that those people were also involved in the, the plot to do the very same thing in the state of Georgia. Do you think this all goes back, including the Michigan efforts. Do you think this all goes back to Trump and potentially Rudy Giuliani, who oversaw a lot of that uh, election machine interference? Yeah, well, clearly this was a coordinated effort that started at the very top, uh, involved all of these same actors that we've been hearing about all the way throughout the course uh, of these investigations. Um, and it shouldn't surprise anyone that they had attorneys and many other individuals that were operating at the state levels as well. Um, so, you know, this is this is all coordinated. It truly is the definition uh, of a legal conspiracy. Um, and I think that, you know, before the special prosecutor is done, whether it's federally uh, Jack Smith or the special prosecutor who's working in Michigan, I think we're going to see a lot more indictments generated. Yeah, I got to ask on that level, because we know at the state level, Fonnie Willis may be gearing up to indict Trump. And if, in fact, the Michigan plot does go all the way back to Trump, would it foreclose the possibility that the special counsel in your state might also indict Trump? Well, I, I will say this, you know, I'm, I'm not going to foreclose any um, possibility. And I don't know uh, what the prosecutor, the special prosecutor here, D.J. Hilson, has planned or, or doesn't have planned. Um, I will say that. You know, one of the reasons why in the very beginning uh, I initially referred our false slate of electors case uh, to the federal government is because of jurisdictional related issues. And, you know, in Michigan, um, you know, I as attorney general have statewide authority. I can charge in, in any county. 
Uh, I can execute search warrants in any county in the state of Michigan. But, you know, I'm limited. I, it's much more difficult when you're talking about reaching actors that operated outside of the state of Michigan. Uh, and that's true for most of the state AGs. So, you know, that's why you really rely on the federal government to do their job, because, of course, their jurisdiction is the entire nation. Yeah, I, I have to ask about this because the, at the state level, states have been pretty clear about the, 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 the malfeasance that was occurring at the state level and sort of defer, standing in deference to the feds to wait for that indictment. You know, I, I sense that there has been some amount of frustration at the pace at which the feds have been working. And now we are running into the calendar for uh, a, a, a campaign season. I mean, what do you make of the timeline uh, with which uh, the DOJ has operated in terms of issuing this indictment and completing or at least the initial stage of its investigation? Well, I will say this, that it's inescapable that the vast majority of the evidence that we've seen in the indictment, I think, was work that was frankly done by the January 6th commission um, and, and perhaps prior to the special prosecutor really getting involved in um, in any parts of that uh, and then running with what uh, the J6 committee had already done. So, you know, for me here in Michigan, I think it was just very important that as we moved along, that there was a sense that when people had committed crimes, obvious open crimes, many of which these individuals had openly bragged about, that there was some feeling of accountability and that when you commit certain crimes, crimes that we as prosecutors regularly charge each and every day here in the state of Michigan, that you not be treated differently because your crimes were committed in behest of this scheme uh, to have the person of your choosing reelected as president of the United States. You're not any less culpable of these crimes because you did it for that purpose. And that was one of the messages that I think needed to be sent. Uh, if you committed these crimes, you're just as guilty as anybody else who committed similar crimes. The only difference is these crimes would have resulted in the overturning of a lawful election in which 5.5 million people voted in my state. I, I want to ask on that just really quick about that, that question of accountability. There is some sense that at the federal level, there are options for Trump to derail all of this. Should he become the nominee? Should he become president again in 2024? And that it once again, the onus may return to the states in terms of holding people to account. Is that something you think about as, as this all moves forward, that if all else fails on the federal level, it will be the states in the United States of America that hold Trump and his allies uh, to account? Alex, quite, quite honestly, I mean, if we get to that point where we have a situation where Donald Trump becomes president again, irrespective of all of these many different indictments, uh, and then puts a person like, for instance, uh, a Jeffrey Clark, you know, um, in as his attorney general, we're going to have a whole lot of problems, much worse to think about than whatever the accountability is or isn't for what occurred during the 2020 election. So, you know, my hope is that um, is that people will be properly held accountable in these current prosecutions and that that is not going to be a concern for us. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. Uh, we will be following everything you're doing. Thanks for having me. When we come back, what one of the new federal criminal charges against Donald Trump owes to history, specifically the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. We're going to explain coming up next.
In 45 pages, special counsel Jack Smith takes us on a tour of all of the places where former President Donald Trump knowingly and repeatedly lied to pressure state and local officials to change their election results. In Detroit, Trump allegedly claimed that there had been a suspicious dump of votes after polls closed. The whole city was totally corrupt, he said. In Philadelphia, Trump publicly maligned a city commissioner for saying there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud in Philadelphia. In Atlanta, Trump and co-conspirator one, Rudy Giuliani, repeatedly pointed to the State Farm Arena as the locus of voter fraud in the state of Georgia. Giuliani publicly smeared election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. He accused these two black election workers of passing around USB ports as if they're vials of heroin or cocaine. Literally no evidence to support that. Now, what do all three of those places have in common? Most voters in those places are black and brown. At the heart of Trump's alleged plot to overturn the 2020 election is an unrelenting effort to disenfranchise black and brown voters specifically. And as it turns out, that is a felony. Yesterday, special counsel Smith charged Trump under Section 241 of the U.S. Criminal Code, the Ku Klux Klan Act, the KKK Act. The act dates back to 1870 when the Klan was on the rise, harassing black people and preventing them from exercising their right to vote, including the right to have their votes counted. Now, count four of this new indictment accuses Trump of violating Section 241 by conspiring to injure, oppress, threaten and intimidate one or more persons in the free exercise and enjoyment of the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. Joining us now is Maya Wiley, civil rights attorney, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Maya, there's no better person to talk to about this. I was very fired up about this yesterday because to me, it did not seem like a coincidence that there is a distinct racial project at the heart of the KKK Act. And there seems to have been a distinct racial, which is to say racist project at the heart of Trump's efforts to disenfranchise votes. This was not a coincidence. They were black and brown votes that he was trying to get discounted. Well, look what Donald Trump had to do to try to steal the 2020 election from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. He had to go to places where he had to try to find votes or get folks to say, oh, no, no, those weren't the votes. (laughs) We won't counter certify those. We've got our own electors. But they were concentrated with people of color because Trump was not going to win a lot of people of color. And that's why we have Georgia. That's why we had Detroit, which is in the indictment very prominently Maricopa County. I mean, Maricopa County. So so well, even in in in, remember that in in Arizona, he kept saying all these aliens, all these undocumented immigrants, which is another code word for people who are Mexican uh, and and living in the state. So this is something we have seen from Trump and heard from Trump. It is critically important to understand that, frankly, all the big lies which is not even a new lie. It's an old lie. Donald Trump just kept pulling it out, dusting it off and using it for his own ends was always to make it harder for black and brown people to vote and people in Indian country because they were predictably Democratic voters. And so if you didn't have the numbers the way you could get them, 
make it harder for the brown folks and the black folks to vote. Yeah, 92 percent of black voters in the 2020 election voted for Joe Biden. Right. That's a political reality that Donald Trump was well aware of. But also the Trump project is centered on white grievance, which doesn't leave a lot of room for people of color. Right. I mean, it all it's a snake eating its own tail to some degree. I just kind of wonder whether there's something, you know, whether this can be talked about explicitly, because I think right now it's in there as a statute and it's sort of generally depriving people of rights, generally depriving them of having their votes counted. But because of the history with this law, because of the reality of what Trump is doing in terms of targeting communities of color, can we connect those two dots? It do, and do you think that was sort of the intention of special counsel Smith? Is it an Easter egg of sorts hidden in that indictment? You know, I can't speak for uh, for Jack Smith, but I will say that the Legal Defense Fund, where I used to work back in the day that Thurgood Marshall, first black Supreme Court judge, justice founded, uh, filed this suit and called it out explicitly, starting in Wayne County, starting in in Michigan, uh, saying Donald Trump is it actively trying to prevent black votes from counting. That was very explicit. And they expanded it to Philadelphia, to Georgia, to other cities. Uh, that lawsuit is still moving forward in the courts. A district court, federal court in Washington, D.C., would not allow it to be thrown out. So they have been explicit about it as a civil rights litigating organization, as my former organization, and as a member of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. We're really glad and grateful. But I think to your point, Alex, it's one of the things we've been trying to make very clear about the importance of this indictment is that, you know, we have constitutional rights more perfected in this not so perfect union because we have fought for civil rights for black people, for Mexicans, for people who are Native American, for people who are Asian, for all kinds of people who actually deserve to be protected in their rights to participate in our democracy because they're lawfully allowed to vote. Yeah. But it protects everyone. And this is the point, the point about accountability in this indictment and calling out that this was about stealing voters' voice. Yeah. But also the fact that we have a statute that comes from the need to protect the voices of black people mm -hmm. because they were being killed or beaten up yep. or threatened just because they were trying to go to the polls and vote or hold on to their elective office. And I would say this is not the first time a Trump ally has been, I think, can, well, charged and, and in this case convicted of disenfranchising black votes. In 2023, a Trump supporter was found guilty of a scheme on Twitter telling black voters to vote for Hillary Clinton by text in 2016, which, of course, you cannot do. And this person explicitly wanted to limit black turnout. This is a strategy employed. I'm not going to say at the highest levels, although it seems like we have some evidence to that end. But it is part of the Trump project to explicitly disenfranchise black voters. They're very fine people on, on both, both sides, sides, Alex. Didn't you know that? Yeah. I mean, Maya Wiley. And Proud Boys. Yes, yeah, stand back stand and stand back stand and by. stand by. We know, yeah, they say the quiet part out loud. Maya Wiley, thank you for your time and your expertise as always. Thank you. When we come back, it is a tradition that started with George Washington. And it's a tradition that almost ended with Donald Trump. We're going to have more on that coming up next. 
The central point of special counsel's Jack Smith in his latest indictment against Donald Trump is that Trump refused to cede power. And that idea that presidents transfer power peacefully is something we've basically taken for granted here in the United States, perhaps because it has been customary for more than two centuries. It started with George Washington, who was the first president of the United States, <clears throat> something I think everybody knows, who set the precedent of voluntarily stepping down after two terms. And then it was John Adams who set the precedent of pe peacefully conceding and transferring power after losing his bid for re-election. So he was a one-termer, and he stepped away from the mic. But for much of the world in the 18th century, that practice was uncommon. As Peter Baker writes in the New York Times today, it was a fairly radical innovation in its day, an era when kings and emperors generally gave up power only upon natural death or at the point of a weapon. Joining me now is Douglas Brinkley, presidential historian and a professor of history at Rice University. Doug, thanks for being here. I'm, I, I, just to give us a little bit of context about this moment we find ourselves in, how novel was it for a fledgling republic to say, hey, you know what? People aren't going to kill each other to gain power. We're going to have a peaceful transition. Take us in the wayback machine, if you could. Well, George Washington, everybody wanted him to serve a third term they, because he was uh, what, what the cohesive for the nation. He's what kept everybody glued together. And Washington, really, maybe his greatest achievement as president was was abdicating power, stepping down, saying, no, I'm going to be a citizen in Virginia, going back to Mount Vernon and allowing this democratic process to um, unravel. And nothing was a sure thing. I mean, you know, we went to Adams, to Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and we can count them. And pretty soon it became the great tradition of free and fair elections in the United States. And the fact that you, you, you didn't cling to power, you served the Constitution. It's what made America such a special place in U.S. presidential history uh, in envy of of other democracies around the world. Yeah, when Adams uh, basically ceded power to Jefferson, was it considered weird at the time or was it just accepted because of the precedent Washington had set of saying, I know when enough's enough? It was it was weird. I mean, remember, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson really had a great dislike for each other. Now, later in life, wanting to send a, a unifying you know, message, they began an incredible correspondence about the American Revolution, like and kind of became friends. But just cut to the election of 1800, Adams versus Jefferson. It was brutal as it is now of Trump versus Biden. And the fact is that we just kept turning it over. We just kept turning it over. And, you know, any time a group does election monitoring in the world today, uh, that's what we tell countries the key to democracy is. If you lost, you lost, admit it and leave. Otherwise, you're an authoritarian regime or you're running a dictatorship. The first president that's tried to be a dictator is Donald J. Trump. And it's now Trump versus the United States government with Jack Smith's, uh, you know, f uh, four felony charges this week. Yeah. I mean, the other word for it may be king. I mean, and, and in fact, the Trump, yeah. the judge who is overseeing this case at trial has already issued a ruling in which she said presidents are not kings. And speaking of Trump plaintiff, sorry, speaking of someone else, not Trump and plaintiff. I'm sorry. The plaintiff was Trump. The plaintiff is not president. Yeah. Presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not president. This is in his post-presidency. She issues a ruling effectively calling Trump a wannabe king. Do you think that that I mean, his behavior, yes, is autocratic and some some shades fascistic. But 
Is it king-like? I mean, it is almost a monarchical sense of the presidency that he has. That everything he says about it and his power, which he sees as uncircumscribed and undiluted, seems to be monarchical in the way that, you know, King George probably thought he was, you know, the be-all, end-all of, of the British Empire. Precisely. And I think of all when he was president, Trump's great journey was to Britain and meet the royals. To him, that's the epitome of world leadership. The problem is it's not just the monarchy. It's the fact of Putinization of Trump, that he remember all the moments of his uh, just admiring Putin. And he doesn't have to step down. You know, the writer Norman Mailer used to say uh, sometimes American politicians have Castro envy because they have to leave every so often where Castro could stay and stay and stay. So take Trump as a combination of king and Putinite. And you've and add to that the fact that he's been uh, hawking, you know, snake oil for forever in America. Um, and one of the worst being the Trump University scam. And you had a, a recipe for a disaster in the making. Donald Trump has no fidelity or loyalty to the U.S. Constitution. It's only to himself. And if you get in his way, he will destroy you. And there's a road of bones everywhere where anybody who does business with Trump or interacts with him, because at heart, he is anti-democratic and small d in spirit. Well, Doug, it feels like, and I'm not a historian, but we may be at an inflection point where the concept of a peaceful transfer of power may actually be in jeopardy in the first time, for the first time since... John Adams. That's where we are. But Douglas at, le- Spring. at least Michael, at least Vice President Pence stood up and is standing up right now. And he is going to be quite um, in the courtroom, be quite a menace for Donald Trump because Pence is speaking the truth. Pence on the witness stand. We'll see it when yes. we see it. Douglas Brinkley, thank you for your insight tonight. That thank is you, our Alex. show for this evening. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com.